tough talk to the press, rough tactics in the ring, a challenge from Fred Beal, and George Hackenschmidt comes to America. It's the story of Tom Jenkins, part six. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves, pro wrestling history nerds. We're back so soon. Are you happy to hear from me? I hope so. Explains why you're listening. Explains why you press the button. Explains why through the power of science you have brought us together, my ramblings, your ears. We're hoping it all works out. What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossard. I am a professional wrestling booker. I am a professional wrestling promoter, but more importantly for the day, I'm a pro wrestling historian, and that's what we do here at this show. We delve into the deep, rich history of professional wrestling. We're not talking about our childhood matches, our favorites. Well, sometimes we do. We're going way back, back to the pioneer era. And if this is your first time hopping on board the Hippodrome Express, well, thank you for being here. I'm I'm glad you decided to check us out. However, this might not be the best starting place for you. You might notice that this says part six of a series, uh, implying there are parts one through five, which might be a good place to, uh, to start with that number one. If you know a bit about Tom Jenkins, about Frank Gotch, about George Hockenschmidt, you know, you may jump right in, catch right up, appreciate everything we're doing and everything I'm rambling on about. But if you don't, go back to part one, laying the foundation, catch up on the story of Tom Jenkins, so it makes a lot more sense and you get more out of this episode. And boy, you may be saying, why is Nick talking so much about Tom Jenkins these days? Well, it's because A, he's a fascinating and underrepresented figure when wrestling history comes up. He's in that era of Gotch versus Hockenschmidt, kind of after the Strangler Lewis Muldoon days, you'll kind of find a hard place finding a place for him when the big names are discussed, because unfortunately, history is often reduced, especially in sports circles, to a very single player narrative, if you will, where everything centers around one person and then centers around another one person and then another one person. So when you see the big overlaps of stories, trends, importance, rankings, however you want to put it, sometimes that becomes a little more difficult when you are writing biographies or doing one-off podcasts about wrestling history and Again, Tom Jenkins often just kind of falls through the cracks or becomes a background character in the Frank Gotch story, a background character in the York Hockenschmidt story. So I really wanted to bring him to the forefront. And the other reason is, as I've stated before, I really wanted to go back and redo a lot of the stories from the pioneer era that we covered when we when I started this podcast. Because when I started this podcast, I wasn't the best researcher that I could have been, not nearly as good as I am now, I would read whatever books I could find on people like Frank Gotch, George Hackenschmidt, William Muldoon, Strangler Lewis, and I would take those authors' research and perspectives and opinions at face value, maybe combine a little bit, but by and large, I was trusting other people's work wasn't necessarily the best move. I've often thought about just redoing those episodes, but instead I decided to tell the stories from a different perspective to make it a 
richer experience as I correct old research. Not saying that these authors were bad people doing lazy work, they just didn't have access to the information that we have today. Because back then, you go to your regional or the biggest city near you library, you break out the microfiche, you go through the archives that are physical things, you have to scan, you can't just key search a word or a name and bring up everything. So by the virtue that I have access to so many digital newspaper archives, gives me an advantage and a privilege that they lacked because when you're looking at papers from the late 1800s, early 1900s, mistakes were common. A lot of times sports writers weren't wrestling fans or didn't know what was even happening, so they described things poorly or they ascribed the victory to the wrong person or the writer would have to leave to catch a train back to wherever they lived and if the match was going late, well, guess what? I'm not sticking around to see the third fall, so I don't even know what to tell you. So I was able to kind of go back, do better research, and tell the stories from a different perspective. So case in point, instead of doing William Muldoon again, I did the story of Clarence Whistler. Instead of talking about Evan the Strangler Lewis again, I talked about his promoter, Parson Davies. And now we're kind of revisiting the time of Gotch and Hackenschmidt, but I wanted to bring it through the eyes of the story, the lens, if you will, of the story of Tom Jenkins. So if I hope that makes sense and I hope you appreciate the ideas behind it as I'm trying to just kind of create a bigger picture of the time in which these men were stars. And where we last left off was the dawn of 1905. Tom Jenkins had returned from England after his loss to George Hackenschmidt. He was broke, well not broke, but he didn't make any money while in England. The promoter stiffed everyone involved on that big match. He tried to sue, but good luck accomplishing that from an ocean away in 1904-1905. He set up his next big match, theoretically to reclaim his title from Frank Gotch. It was in all the papers. It was built up huge. It was everything that promoting professional wrestling could be at that time. And Jenkins came up short. He did not win his title back. He was reduced to the number one contender. I feel, as I explained then, that was a great move for swindling the gamblers because everybody on earth was thinking that it was Jenkins' time to shine. But it was not. Lots of money was made. Jenkins, of course, said he was injured and almost dropped off. And there were accusations of, gosh, giving up a fall for the sake of being able to gamble more money on himself and make more money. So there was a lot of drama, a lot of ballyhoo, a lot of showbiz insanity that sets the stage for what came next in 1905. Which brings us to February 27th, when the big announcement was made for a match between Jenkins and English wrestler Jim Parr. Parr had just come off of a big draw against Frank Gotch, and Gotch, in turn, more or less put Parr in Jenkins' path to a rematch with him. So it was, Parr did so well that he didn't lose to Gotch, which is about all you could really hope for in those days. So Frank 
either carried or prearranged a draw with Parr to elevate Parr. Parr gets in the way of Jenkins' rematch, so we have a great story being told already. Clearly, expectations were high, with the Pittsburgh press announcing, quote, another fake arranged. So clearly, the press and public was a little hesitant to embrace the authenticity of such a match. And it happened on Friday, March 3rd, at the Salzer's Harlem Casino in New York City. Two out of three falls to a finish, no time limit, with $500 aside for the personal bets. Jenkins took the first fall with a half Nelson and crotch hold for a pin at the 19-minute, 12-second mark. According to the New York Times, quote, Jenkins was fairly vicious in the way he went at par after the rest of the 10 minutes between bouts. He had the Briton grinding his face into the mat. So, Jenkins, uh, not, uh, not exactly playing sweet boy in this one. He got the second straight fall and the match at the 9 minute 55 second mark when he, judging from the description, turned a body lock into a headlock throw for a pin, kind of like a headlock takeover in modern contemporary pro wrestling. So just to kind of give you the visual. After the win, Jenkins immediately went back to the press, challenging Frank Gotch, claiming that he's now healthy and ready to beat his rival. Gotch replied, saying he'd accept the challenge so long as Jenkins wouldn't make excuses and would bet $1,000. So Gotch and Jenkins are back to jawing at each other in the press, escalating the terms of another match, just as they have done multiple times in the past. But things were about to get more complicated. On March 8, 1905, in the New York Times, there was an announcement that George Hackenschmidt is set to arrive in New York City in April, having arrived in San Francisco from Australia. Hackenschmidt expects to wrestle the winner of Gotch versus Jenkins on Wednesday, March 15th, at Madison Square Gardens. So there's no overlooking or minimizing the arrival of Hackenschmidt in the United States. Everyone has heard of the man who is involved in sporting circles or reads the sports paper. Everyone knows he is a hulking monster, like a just, just like a, uh, it's like if Hercules was real and came to the United States to wrestle. He is a physical specimen. He is a living legend in the sporting world for his strength, for his fitness, for his discipline, for his wrestling prowess, for his refusal to hippodrome a match, his, his authenticity as a grappler and a competitor. So yes, this was a big deal for Sports fans, wrestling fans, sports writers, culture as a whole, Hackenschmidt had come to the U.S. to challenge the best amongst us. And come March 15th at Madison Square Gardens, the day of the match, the New York Evening World claimed that, quote, the men are to wrestle to a finish, the winner of two falls out of three to get the decision, pin falls only will count, and any fall on or off the mat will count unless the referee sees fit to bring the men back to the mat. So, kind of sounds like an early falls count anywhere match. Highly doubt they brawled into the crowd or backstage and you can watch it on the Titantron, but I digress. The Buffalo Times covered the argument over the referee with Tim Hurst being the selection. 
every paper covering the match, of course, had an accompanied piece about George Hackenschmidt, getting the winner, how each scenario would play out, and how the Russian lion would only wrestle Greco-Roman rules. So again, we are seeing the, the seeds of drama, if you will, because Hackenschmidt only wrestled competitive matches, and if he was working with anyone, he made it so stacked in his favor in case anybody tried some shit that it became impossible to, you know, more or less put him in a position where he would be defeated. You see this a lot with boxing stars where they're able through their own management and agency to stack the deck in their favor so much that even if they weren't already the favor to win based on skill and ability, the rule set and de business details sure as hell give them more of an advantage. And the size of the crowd was covered by the Buffalo Times with, quote, 5,000 men with a score of fashionably dressed women saw the bouts. In the preliminaries, Professor Hakoya threw the much larger Fukuka inside six minutes of their jiu-jitsu match, which is a hell of a preliminary to have two Japanese competitors doing a jiu-jitsu rules match during a pro wrestling card. I just personally found that fascinating. Love to see it. But then came the main event. Jenkins and Gotch entered the ring at 9.35 p.m., and the crowd went wild. According to this article, only the stranglehold was banned. After 19 minutes, 34 seconds, Jenkins pinned Gotch with a half-Nelson turn with arm control. So, so much for Gotch's predictions that you could hear at the end of last episode. In the second, Gotch came out aggressive and, quote, picked Jenkins, mistyped as Jeffries, up as a child, would pick up a doll and slammed him on the mat. Gotch rolled him over, seemingly with ease, and used a neck crank lock to pin him at 6 minutes 47 seconds. As the third got underway, it was Gotch who was the aggressor yet again. But as the Times claimed, quote, it was a case of the light that failed. Jenkins turned the tables on Gotch, who looked increasingly tired, pushing him relentlessly until he pinned the champ at 11 minutes 10 seconds. Quote, neither man seemed especially distressed at this finish. So yeah, this was almost certainly a work to put the title on Jenkins and send Jenkins into the waiting arms of his old friend George Hackenschmidt. Gotch and his mentor Farmer Burns certainly knew it was better to build up Hackenschmidt in America with a match against Jenkins, knowing that Jenkins would certainly lose then capitalized later on once American fans understood just what the Russian lion was capable of. So yes, whether Jenkins was in on it or not, I don't honestly know, because I feel that Gotch had all the confidence in the world that he could beat anyone in a shoot match, and honestly, that confidence was well-earned and well-deserved. So, yes, there was a certain amount of risk sending in Jenkins with the championship belt on his waist into the arms of George Hackenschmidt, who, if accepting catch rules, would almost certainly wreck Jenkins and have a title claimant right there. So, yeah, there are a lot of moving parts, but again, 
I feel that Gotch knew that if Hackenschmidt beat Jenkins, well, he can then almost certainly beat Hackenschmidt and take that belt back, whether Hackenschmidt liked it or not. And if Jenkins happens to win, cool, well, that just elevates Jenkins more in America and the world's eyes. So when Gotch beat him again to get the title back, since they seem to be swapping back and forth at least a couple times a year, well, it's a win-win for him, even though there are a lot of moving parts. But if you know the story of Frank Gotch, you know that that's not a man who did things half-assed when it came to the long cons. See his Alaska story for details. The Brooklyn Times Union pointed out that there were plenty of, quote, doubting Thomases when it came to the match's legitimacy. Faking and wrestling go hand in hand, hence the limitations placed on its popularity. It's a strange condition of affairs. Yeah, so pretty much, you know, we can go back to the days where, you know, you talk to wrestlers in the 60s and 70s and 80s and the fans from the same era, and they'll always decry the breaking of kayfabe, the collapse of the idea and image of wrestling as a legitimate contest, when even back in the 1800s, press was already calling it out for being bullshit. So many people saw the build of Jenkins against Hackenschmidt as showbiz bullshit, as ballyhoo, as silly goosiness. We'll use that term moving forward, or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe this is a one-time thing, but I like it. So yeah, a lot of people kind of saw behind the curtain and saw the planning on this because it was kind of obvious. The Des Moines Register on the 17th claimed that Gotch was coming home to rest, before making a challenge to Jenkins for a rematch, because of course he did. This was probably needed, the rest of course, since Gotch had been very active and traveling heavily since winning the title off of Jenkins. So yes, now it was Gotch's turn to claim poor conditioning as the excuse, with articles like, quote, Gotch out of shape, appearing in the papers nationwide. So yes, this is something you would see champions having to do, even all the way up through the 1920s, you would see a wrestler who is a hot regional guy, he gets a title shot, and now he's the champion. He's the acknowledged champion coast to coast thanks to media matters. So it's now him traveling all over the country, sometimes to England, defending his title. And this isn't the modern world where you wake up Friday, you stretch, you have a nice breakfast, you go to the airport, you fly to that city, you check into your hotel. No, this is not that. This is a time when you had to catch a train. You, you had to go from a city to city over the course of a couple of days. You weren't being able to like have nice healthy meals. You're eating you know, a burger in a greasy spoon along the highway. You are not treating your body well. You're not fueling your body well. It's rough on your physicality, on your psychology, on your just mental and emotional health together. So yeah, when you have somebody like Gotch who was very active in defending his title, and keep in mind, even working these matches, they're going a couple of hours and then just getting on a train and going to the next city. So yeah, it was either break down or take time off, which gives a perfect chance to pass the title to somebody else while you kind of got your shit together, felt rested up, and you could come back and do it all over again. 
Case in point, again, when you listen to our series on the Goldust Trio and wrestling in the 90s, you would see guys like Ed Lewis, Earl Caddick, Joe Stetcher. All of them would have really strong title runs and would drop it, not necessarily because it was like a big dramatic moment, even though they would make those big dramatic moments matter. It was because, for the love of God, I need to go home and eat salads and sleep in for at least a couple of weeks. The sporting media was immediately focused on Jenkins versus Hackenschmidt. The Brooklyn citizen gave voice to Jenkins' manager, Harry Pollock, to man catches catch can rules instead of Greco-Roman in their March 21st edition. He aired the grievance of how Hackenschmidt, his team, and the English sporting press was cruelly dismissive of anything but Greco-Roman rules for the Russian lion. But now that Hackenschmidt would be in America, he needed to abide by the American way of things. And Pollock stated, quote, I want to appeal personally to the American press for assistance in forcing Hackenschmidt to wrestle Jenkins catch-as-catch-can. Look at Twitter today. Look at social media. Look at how easy it is to appeal directly to the fans, the American people, the viewing audience, the voters, to say, hey, I need you to help me pressure, see also, hound and be an asshole to this person so they see the light, aka be bullied into breaking, and abiding by what the people want. So yeah, it's a dirty trick. It makes you look like immediately your opinion is validated and legitimate, posits you as an underdog, just trying to get to the powerful person to do the right thing, even if the right thing is horrible for the person in the crosshairs of this target. March 21st, New York Times. Hackenschmidt will wrestle Jenkins, but only under Greco-Roman rules. Jenkins stated that if Hackenschmidt can beat him under catch-as-catch-can rules, he can have the entire purse. The article reminisced about Jenkins' trip to England the previous spring and how Hackenschmidt would only wrestle under Greco-Roman rules there, and quote, Now, in all fairness, Jenkins should receive a chance to reverse the situation that confronted him in London last spring. The press was excited about the prospect of Hackenschmidt in America. He was seen as a world beater and the pinnacle of sporting manhood. He had, in the fantastic words of the March 22nd province, quote, During his career as a hammerlock expert, he has downed all the terrible Turks, bouncing Belgians, and furious Frenchmen that the promoters of wrestling in England and on the continent could muster as opponents for him. I... <laughs> I, I love the alliteration, of course. Um, but yes, he is, again, when you have those giant foreign stars, it brings an exoticness to it, especially in the days of newspapers where, you know, just think about being in 1905, trying to think of like what life was like in Belgium. If you're an average person who's never left your hometown, that's a that might as well be the moon. It's exotic. It's romantic. So this... Estonian Russian living in London, beating all comers, coming to America to conquer the US. If he had been a Minotaur, it only would have been like, I mean, like a legitimate Minotaur, not a gimmick wearing a mask. It would have been only slightly more incredulous for the people reading about it.
And a quick personal aside, this type of situation still has magic. It still has importance. It still kind of feels the same way. Um, it was only last fall that I was able to get Japanese wrestling legend Minoru Suzuki for my show. So I was one of the rare independent shows that was able to have Minoru Suzuki on his poster, on the marquee. I sold so many tickets, uh, it's the day I announced that, you can only imagine. So yes, the exoticness of a foreign, dangerous, legendary wrestler on the poster, on the marquee, just as amazing today as it was in 1906. We, of course, just don't have a Twitter comments enabled back in those days. The March 28, 1905, San Francisco Examiner announced that George Hackenschmidt had arrived the previous day on the steamship Sonoma after cleaning up during his tour of Australia. And I have heard through friends that there is a can of footage in Australia that just says George Hackenschmidt match on it, something along those lines, and they're not sure what the match is because it is 1904-1905 nitrate footage and probably just trying to hold it up to the light would make it explode. Hopefully they're able to you know, restore it and see what's actually in there because I bet it would be fascinating. The next day, the Waterbury Democrat claimed that Hackenschmidt had secretly been taking boxing lessons and would challenge James Jeffries to a fight. Again, every goddamn wrestling star was either rumored to start boxing or was outright making challenges to the champ in order to drum up publicity. Um, I can practically guarantee you that George Hackenschmidt, who didn't even want to wrestle outside his rule set, sure as shit was not going to try boxing and making a fool of himself that way. On April 18th, per the Buffalo Times, it looked like Hackenschmidt was trying to get out of his match with Jenkins. Hackenschmidt was reportedly turning down the Madison Square Garden offer to host the match, which put it in jeopardy. On April 30th, it was reported through the New York Times that Hackenschmidt and Jenkins would have a match at Madison Square Gardens after all, with a $1,000 side bet and 50% of the gate. Huge money in those days. So, yes, again, we see George Hackenschmidt trying to renegotiate on the fly, trying to shoot down offers, only to accept later offers, much like Jenkins and Gotch in their series. You escalate interest by escalating the stakes. Make it seem more special by making it seem like it might not happen at all. So when it does come together, it's a holy shit, are we really going to see this after all kind of moment. Very smart, very shrewd businessmen. Great way to get interest and therefore more money. On May 3rd, the Waterbury Democrat printed a fun bit about George Hackenschmidt manager Charles B. Cochran, claiming that his client could throw any six men in an hour and would bet $500 on it. A group approached him at the Orpheum Theater in Brooklyn to take him up on that Friday at the Columbia Theater. My dear man, said Cochran, Hack wrestles Tom Jenkins in Madison Square Garden Thursday night for the World Catches Catch Can Championship. And is it not rather unfair to ask him to tackle a sextet of trolley dodgers on the very next night? Hackenschmidt, of course, intervened and accepted the challenge. I'm just loving the term trolley dodgers. What a, what a fun little insult to call somebody low class. So yes, we have 
his manager saying, no, 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 he's wrestling Tom Jenkins for the title in the biggest match of the city. Oh my God, how dare you group of goofballs even say that you would even want to do this when that man needs a day off. And Hackenschmidt himself came forward and said, nah, man, I got it. Not his exact words, probably. May 4th, 1905, Tom Jenkins versus George Hackenschmidt in Madison Square Garden. The New York Times, the day of the show, stated that the match will take place in a 24-foot ring, four feet off the ground. All holds are admitted except the stranglehold. So this is a very big ring, a lot of room to move around in. 24 feet is huge. A wrestling ring at the WWE level is 20 by 20. So this is a bigger ring than what you see on television. A lot of room to maneuver, a lot of room to kind of avoid the ropes, which I feel was probably a lot of the strategy to keep your opponents away from the ropes, keep the action nonstop without rope breaks or anybody going under it. There was a lot of thought that probably went into this choice. At least that's what I assume. For all I know, that's the only ring they could find, and I'm just painting a lot of suppositions on top of that happenstance. Most papers, including the Washington Times, reported that the betting odds were even money. Because again, it is catch-as-catch-can rules. So all of the strength that Hackenschmidt brings to the table are still valid, but the capacity for Jenkins to attack the legs does even things out considerably. But how far would it get him? Well, according to the New York Times, Russian defeats Tom Jenkins in straight falls. Big men display all tricks at the catch-as-catch-can game before a good-sized crowd. For some reason, Tom, his first name, was in quotes. I don't know why. Seems weird. Can't explain it. But back to the match. Hackenschmidt won both falls with half Nelson turns, 31 minutes, 15 seconds, and 22 minutes, 4 seconds, respectively. Quote, At no point of the match, held in the Madison Square Garden, was the American anywhere near to securing a fall from the vaunted Russian lion. The Buffalo Inquirer had a little more enthusiasm while describing the match. Quote, George Hackenschmidt, the Russian Lion, defeated Tom Jenkins, the American champion wrestler, in two straight falls last night at Madison Square Garden in a match in which Jenkins was handled like a pygmy in the hands of a giant. Hackenschmidt broke holds as if they were the clutching of a child. At the end of the match, quote, Poor old Tom was hardly able to walk out of the ring. Hackenschmidt dashed away as bristly as ever. Quote, I would like to have thrown him quicker, he said, but several times when I had good holds on him, he turned very white and I was afraid of hurting him, so I let up. The only real advantage Jenkins showed, according to the Washington Times, was his double leg takedowns, which he managed to land and get Hackenschmidt temporarily to the mat. Gotch, of course, challenged Hackenschmidt immediately afterwards. So, holy crap, what... A thing to witness the implications it had to the sport and the planning for the future. Um, I I do kind of feel like this was a legitimate contest. I, I I don't you know if you have a time machine and you can go back and find out by all means shame me bring me back the time traveling evidence we'll do a whole show about it. However, 
if Hackenschmidt was willing to work, he was so secretive about it and able to maintain him his image that it might as well be, you know, he's even got me fooled. Does it mean that's impossible? Most likely not. But very few of the old European Greco-Roman guys could stomach working matches. You saw how much of a bitter pill that turned in for uh, Stanislaw Zabisco and how it paid off for Wayne Munn and the Goldust Trio. So Jenkins going in and losing two straight as badly as he did and then having Hackenschmidt saying things like, oh, I would have beat him quicker, but every time I squeezed this little guy, he would turn white and I was afraid I was hurting him. You either had to have it be a shoot match, a legitimate competition, where Hackenschmidt was just the superior athlete, the superior technician, which I'm sure he was, or you had to have Jenkins going in willing to show his ass so entirely to be steamrolled by the Russian in Madison Square Garden, to be not even getting in a fall, not even getting in anything, to be made fun of afterwards, both by his opponent and by the press. I don't know if you can put a dollar amount on that kind of humiliation. Because yes, many wrestlers before and after were willing to just get stomped flat and made a fool out of but is there enough money from that one match to qualify the damage that does to your public image? So again, I lean more towards it being a legit competition where he walked in trying to get redemption under the rule set he could normally dominate people with. He fell flat. He got dunked on. He got beat up. He got insulted in the press. So it goes. But either way... You now have Gotch calling out Hackenschmidt, setting up, again, one of the most important series of matches in the history of professional wrestling. And this ties into what I talked about at the opening of the episode, about how Jenkins, when people tell the quick history of professional wrestling, the Cliff Notes version of it, he is almost always a background character in the story of George Hackenschmidt. He is a background character in the story of... Frank Gotch, he is not a hero unto himself. That is, again, this was guy was the biggest star in the world for about four years. And four years is a long time to be on top of any sport still to this day. So there is a certain risk when we look back at history of being that like third or fourth most important guy of the era. It's like when we deep dived into the story of the Goldust Trio, where by and large, everybody knows the name Ed Strangler Lewis. They may know Toots Mont. They may know Joe Stetcher. But when you start talking about the John Pessics and the Earl Caddicks and men like that, well, a lot of times they fall under that like they were also there. You know, the, the background characters. Even though they were amazing, they were huge stars, they were the best at what they did in certain angles and certain arenas and certain cities and certain states. But history, unless you do it this way, unless you do the deep dives, the big picture storyline, stories running concurrently, 
it's easy for the second, third, fourth most important guy who could be a huge star who's making the papers every day, is recognized on the street, to essentially disappear, hoping only to get the Best Supporting Actor Award of wrestling history, of sports history. This is true in wrestling. This is true in boxing. This is true in team sports. When people talk about history, it's so hard to branch out and make it less complicated. It's kind of like why, you know, people flock towards history stories that are simpler to tell. World War II, an easy story of good versus evil. Well, that's why when we get to World War One, um, you those stories become a lot more complicated, a lot more in-depth, because trying to understand the motivations of all these different people, all these different powers, when nobody is objectively evil and objectively good, and it's not a simple story, well, guess what? Simple stories with clear views of who is good, who is evil, is the underpinnings of mythology, of storytelling, of pro wrestling. It's what we gravitate towards. It's what we feel. It's what we understand. So yeah, I get it. I get it. But now we have Hackenschmidt, the winner over Jenkins. And according to the May 6th, 1905 Buffalo Inquirer, Frank Gotch says Hack is afraid. So Gotch is immediately claiming that Hackenschmidt was ducking him and that he can't run forever. So yeah, Already out of the gate, Gotch is doing what Gotch does best. Well, I guess wrestling is what he does best, but this is a close second. Call somebody out, immediately say that they're a coward and they're ducking him, and positing himself as the hero champ who can who is never going anywhere, is never turning down a match, and there's no way you can avoid me forever, you fucking coward. Meanwhile, Hackenschmidt is like probably having his breakfast going, wait, I haven't even talked to this guy yet. What the shit? It puts that person on the defensive, and it makes them hard to turn down the offer, whatever the offer may be. And Hackenschmidt already had his own complaints. From the Waterbury Democrat on May 6th, covering Hackenschmidt's complaining about the pay for his match against Jenkins, with which Hack was annoyed. In that match, he earned $3,500. Quote, such littleness, sighs Hack between growls. But he was thoroughly angry and showed it last night when he tackled six men in the Columbia Theater and threw them all within 16 minutes. For this, he got a paltry $500. I like how it ties back to those six trolley dodgers, whom he accepted the challenge. So the night after beating the American champ in Madison Square Garden, he goes back to this little theater and throws the shit, I assume, out of these six random assholes who showed up looking for their moment of glory. I have a feeling he took some of his frustration out on them, and they were probably wondering why they thought this was a good idea. And yes, the money involved in this. It makes me think of when like big European music acts that don't really translate to huge, you know, huge fan bases in the United States do their tours. I'll always remember seeing this band Blind Guardian. They're a European you know, metal band that is nerdy as hell. Half their songs are about Dungeons and Dragons or the Lord of the Rings. And you see in Europe, they play these festival shows where it's just people in a field as far as the eye can see. 
They come to the United States and they play in front of about a thousand people and there's a little room for more had they shown up. So yeah, him coming to the United States, not quite drawing what he thought he was going to draw, not making the money he was hoping to make, and probably wondering why he got on the goddamn ship to begin with. And here's something you probably didn't see coming, or maybe you did for different reasons. On May 9th from the Evening World, Gotch challenges Jenkins. Harry Pollock, Jenkins' manager, claimed that Frank Gotch wants to defeat Jenkins, so Hackenschmidt will be forced to give him a match. So now Jenkins is being reduced to a wrestling football, being kicked back and forth between Gotch and Hackenschmidt. So Hackenschmidt beats him in two straight falls and says that he didn't. He kept worrying about hurting the little fella. And now Gotch wants a piece of Jenkins to say, you call that beating Tom Jenkins? I'm going to show you what beating Tom Jenkins is all about. So now we have Gotch wanting another match with Jenkins so he can rub it in Hackenschmidt's face that this is how you beat a man that you beat. It's convoluted. It's weird. It's show business. It's wrestling. But that match happened on May 19th, 1905 at Madison Square Garden. I couldn't help but notice the lack of sizzle in the press over this one. It was put together with only a few weeks notice, but I think this rivalry had more or less run its course, especially in the light of Jenkins being squashed flat by Hackenschmidt and Gotch calling out Hackenschmidt. So... It's already kind of come and gone. It's nothing new. Everyone's seen it. And there's something bigger and more important on the horizon. So I feel the sporting and wrestling press, the sporting and wrestling fan base, was more or less going, oh, we have to wait this one out until we can see this one. Still, according to the May 20th Buffalo Inquirer, the match drew 4,000 spectators, including 100 women. It was set for two out of three falls, catch-as-catch-can rules. The headline claimed the match was, quote, said to be the roughest and most unfair bout ever witnessed in the big city. Both men were hissed repeatedly. Never since the world began has there been a match so full of wrangling, rough work, and protests of foul play. Jenkins won two out of three for the win and claimed again to be the U.S. champion since Hackenschmidt had sailed back to England. So yes, why not claim to be the champion? Maybe the title wasn't actually up for defense against the Russian Lion. I didn't see any articles that say it was. Maybe it was and nobody was reporting it. Maybe it's a case of, well, he won and went back to England. So who is anybody to say who's the champ? Again, these are the days where if you claim to be the champion and you can beat other people, hey, why not claim to be the champion? And there was plenty of accusation of rough tactics in this match, like Jenkins using a neck lock when Gotch protested about being strangled. The Waterbury Democrat covered it in detail. After two minutes more of struggling, Jenkins got a neck hold on Gotch, his right forearm under the throat. He's strangling me, Gotch complained. Easy there, Tom, ordered referee Hurst. He drew it there himself, replied Tom. I'm not doing anything to him. Gotch is quitting right now, someone near the ring cried, but it was not fair to the Iowa farmer boy. Still, after breaking out of the lock and getting into it again, Gotch complained again. The Scranton Truth reported and claimed, The match was replete with rough and foul work. 
at the end of one hour and 26 minutes of alleged wrestling, Jenkins got Gotch on all fours. Then he pressed his right forearm across Gotch's nose and mouth so he bled. Gotch apparently deliberately rolled over to his back to escape the abuse. It's, it's one of those holds. It's kind of like if you're watching an MMA or a submission wrestling match where you're going for that rear naked choke, but they tuck their chin. So you use the blade of your arm to compress the cheekbone, the eye socket, the nose, the jaw. If you watched uh, Conor McGregor getting tapped out in his last MMA fight, you'll know what I'm talking about. You use the compression of the forearm the same way you'd use a choke on the neck to do a shitload of damage, but in this case, it's to force somebody to roll over for a pin as opposed to get them to tap out. Same tactic, different results, different strategy. In the second, Gotch rushed Jenkins, pushing him through the ropes, then jerking him back and used the momentum to get him to the mat and on his back at the 36 minute, 52 second mark. But it was Jenkins who won the third at 11 minutes, 10 seconds, with a half Nelson turn. According to the New York Times, quote, The bout was sensational, and at times the crowd seemed on the point of rioting. After the men went to their dressing rooms, Jenkins displayed a wound on his right forearm. He contended that Gotch had used his teeth on him. So what was the story, the plan, the purpose of this match? Was it a work to make Gotch look weak against Jenkins, who had lost to Hackenschmidt, hoping to lure the Russian lion into a false sense of superiority? Was the bloodbath style of a match just to hype the profile of Gotch as a victim during his loss, thus to maintain a look of moral strength in the U.S.? Gotch claimed to the media that he would have won a square contest, but the ref let Jenkins do whatever he wanted without consequences. So, yes, we do have to look at the story being told where Gotch is now the victim of rough tactics as opposed to the handler of rough tactics. Jenkins is kind of doing the working heel, if you will, and is seeking unfair tactics and violent moves while Gotch is just trying to win a wrestling match, gosh darn it. Um... At least they knew how to escalate things for their feud. Because if you just see two men wrestle wrestling matches ten times in a row, well, what's the purpose of buying tickets? What's the story? What's the emotion behind it? What are you trying to get the audience to feel and therefore spend their betting money in a way that benefits you as the fixer of the match? This is why once upon a time you would have you know, things blow off in a dog collar match, a, a, a steel cage match, a barbed wire ring match. I mean, they still happen. You just don't see it on television very often because WWE is more centered on being a PG product because they have to make sponsors happy. They have to make advertisers happy. They can't just go full crazy blood and guts and then follow it up with a dishwasher detergent advertiser. AEW does stick their toe more into the the bloody violent um, type of, of wrestling, the old Crockett style of booking, but even they run into stumbling blocks. If you know the Nick Gage pizza cutter story while a pizza commercial played, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So yes, at least in 1906, they knew it was important to sell a series of matches 
through escalation of stakes and behavior. So if a work, probably a work, it was a great way to do it because now Gotch looks vulnerable. He looks like he can lose because he lost to Jenkins, who just lost badly to Hackenschmidt. So Hackenschmidt would probably look at Gotch as an easy lunch, as an easy win, but also at the same time sympathize with Gotch because Gotch was trying to win a wrestling match under the rules, gosh darn it, and everybody conspired against him with their rough tactics and mean-spiritedness, so on and so forth. So if you put all these ideas together and they were intentional, it's brilliant. If it was accidental, it's fortuitous for everyone involved. Gotch claimed to the media that he would have won a square contest, but the ref let Jenkins do whatever he wanted without consequence. The Buffalo Morning Express on May 22nd, Gotch said, quote, I could have downed him, wrestling rules. He would have been a hard man to beat at the best, but as he was permitted to use what holds he pleased about the neck and about to hold the ropes as he liked when I had him in bad positions. The beating of him was a simple impossibility. He continued to complain about being worn down by the chokehold and how Jenkins had got away with holding the ropes. So again, makes him look sympathetic, makes him look like he would have won the match, and makes Jenkins look like a heel. But once again, Jenkins is the champ. Once again, Jenkins is the top guy. He's got a little bit of a heel heat to him, but that just makes him a hotter prospect, a hotter target for young and up-and-coming wrestlers. Case in point, the Marshfield News of Wisconsin Hub on June 1st reported that Harvey Parker arranged a match for his client, Fred Beal, against Tom Jenkins, claiming that Jenkins had been ducking Beal and that, quote, Beal would have the advantage in a long struggle. He gets better as the longer he wrestles, while men of Jenkins' age tire out. Whoo, so yeah, call somebody out, claim they're ducking him, and then claim that Jenkins is just an old man whose time has come and gone, and it's time for a young man like Beal to take him down, because you can stall all you want, Tom Jenkins, but Beal's eventually going to hold you down, and there's nothing you can do about it. Again, proving that if you have a great manager who can stir up shit and talk your way into situations, they're worth their weight in gold. We saw that with Parson Davies and Evan Lewis. Decades later, we saw that with Sandow and Ed Lewis. So, yes, it is an important part of wrestling. The manager who can talk a good talk, whether it's legitimate business or just a second actor in the worked show. It's an emotionally important piece of the puzzle. Many other contenders were lining up to challenge Jenkins, and in the Butte Daily Post on June 3rd, published, quote, Frank Gotch and Tom Jenkins appear to want to wrestle every time they get a little of the coin, and they are already talking about another. Meanwhile, Gotch was spending his press time talking shit about Hackenschmidt and calling him a coward. And Harvey Parker, a month later, was back in the papers on June 7th, as I found in the Waterbury Democrat. Turns out Parker claimed that he had the side bet money deposited, but Jenkins' backers did not. Quote, somehow the matter was overlooked, and the match thus far has not been arranged. So, I wonder how much of this is Parker having just been running his mouth, running his mouth, running his mouth, and Jenkins not accepting the challenge, 
maybe not even replying. And then Jenkins going, oh, it was time for the show. I don't, what happened on your side, nerd? And Jenkins going, you are who again? That's me. That's some conjecture on my side. Maybe I'm projecting. I don't know. But the match did happen. It finally happened, and not in a way that Parker and Beale probably wanted, during the day of June 10th in New York City, in a private gymnasium in front of, quote, a select crowd of sportsmen, according to the Knoxville Sentinel, which others reported as a hundred men who saw the match. The Buffalo Times reported, quote, Tom Jenkins almost lost wrestling match. Beale gave him a terrific grueling and took one of the falls match was held in private and somebody lost a thousand dollars. Beale was smaller than Jenkins at five foot seven and 165 pounds compared to Jenkins 190. But quote, once the affair was underway, Jenkins bore the aspect of a victim. He was tossed about like a helpless man and was put to it to save himself. Beale won the first fall in two hours and 43 minutes. Yes, you heard me right. Two goddamn hours, 43 goddamn minutes. And that was just the first fall. But from the Sentinel, quote, After a short rest, the men came on for the second bout. Jenkins was thoroughly aroused and went at Beale like a tiger. Yeah. Phrasing, people. Phrasing. The second was won by Jenkins in 1 minute 13 seconds, with Jenkins apparently slamming Beale into a wall, reportedly knocking the wind out of him, and then into a pin, and the third was Jenkins again in 25 minutes 38 seconds. The papers made it sound like the classic tale of a wily vet outlasting aggressive and strong youth, I giggled from the Topeka Daily Capital on June 11th with her article, Through Dom Jenkins, Fred Beale of Wisconsin is now the champion wrestler. Uh, apparently, they only got news of the first fall and didn't ask any follow-up questions. But they were doing better than the Kenosha News, which announced that Harvey Parker was challenging Jenkins on behalf of Beale on June 19th. Sometimes, uh... Sometimes the news took a little bit longer to travel back in those days. You couldn't just get an email or a text message or look it up on the search engine of your choice. So, yes, the one thing with that very long first fall, yeah, there is, there's always going to be that technique beats strength, experience beats youth type of thing. Because, yeah, it was something where... If it was a shoot match, and I kind of feel this one was, just because it took place behind closed doors, it was kind of a weird setup, it wasn't in front of a lot of people, so not a lot of money could be made outside of betting, and Beal went at him with every single thing he had, and Jenkins just took him into the deepest water imaginable, Pretty much saying, oh, you think you can wear me down as the lighter the day goes? Well, young fella, you're about to learn a valuable lesson in that. Uh, not necessarily the same athletic story, but it makes me think of Hoist Gracie versus Kazushi Sakuraba from the Pride 2000 Grand Prix, where Hoist was always talking about, I want no time limits, made special rules for, long, for a long rounds, for a long fight, pretty much making it all about his plan to make it even by dragging anybody who's against him into a 
endless fight with no decisions, no time limits. So Sakuraba showed up and went, you want a long fight? You got a long fight. And dragged him for goddamn ever uh, until he finally won. So it's that type of story. You want to be aggressive. You want to talk shit. You want to call me an old man. You want to say you're going to outlast me. Well, let's prove a goddamn point. And that he did. And Fred Beal, well, he he has a legendary career ahead of him. You're going to get an episode about him eventually because it's kind of wild. But for now, Jenkins has maintained his championship. He's maintained his spot as a top guy, even though the press is more interested in a Gotch Hackenschmidt match. Once again, it's easier to build up a super big match like a Gotch Hackenschmidt match without a title on the line while you're building it up like this. But you know what? That's a story for another day. That's a story for maybe the next episode. As yes, we are going into another part of Tom Jenkins. I'm trying to just tell the biggest story I can with this guy because, again, I find him and his time fascinating. And judging from the numbers, you feel the same way. So we're going to call it good for today. Make sure you like us on Facebook. Follow on Twitter and Instagram. I post all the old fun cartoons and headlines and articles that I find. Um, hopefully you think they're a hoot. Hopefully you enjoy them as much as I do. Uh, if you do, make sure you like them. Make sure you share them. Make sure you retweet them. So I know I'm not just screaming into the void. I am, My ego is very, very fragile and I need all the, all the accolades and attention that I can get. So we'll be back with more of the story of Tom Jenkins next time. But other, otherwise, I'm glad we kind of got back on schedule with this one. Hope you like two episodes back to back like this. And I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>